My name is Alder and welcome to the Black Studies Podcast. Today we will be doing things a little bit differently for this holiday season. We will share with you all a special two-part holiday episode. In today's episode, I'm joined by Daniel McNeil and Sally Al-Sayed to host a talk with David Austin and Brian Mukandi. David Austin is the author of Fear of a Black Nation, winner of the 2014 Casa de las Americas Prize for Caribbean Literature in English or Creole. He is also the author of Moving Against the System, Dread Poetry and Freedom, You Don't Play with Revolution, and A View for Freedom, and has written widely on the Caribbean left and Caribbean black diaspora. He has produced radio documentaries for Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's flagship program, Ideas, on CLR James and France Fanon. He currently teaches in the Humanities, Philosophy, and Religion Department at John Abbott College, and in the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Brian Mukandi is an academic philosopher and health humanities researcher with a background in the practice of medicine in a research-poor sub-Saharan African context. His work is dedicated towards understanding and addressing the social configurations that improve or worsen the well-being of those served least well by society. He is currently a faculty member at the University of Queensland in Australia, and one of his current research projects is Seeing the Black Child, which seeks to expand, reconfigure, and present a more complex understanding of childhood than dominant conceptions of childhood in Australia that take the figure of the white child as paradigmatic. Hi, David. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for making time to join the Black Studies podcast. It's wonderful to see you again, David. Wonderful to meet you, Brian. And we're so excited to think with you, dream with you, conspire with you, and have the opportunity to learn more about the breadth and depth of your transdisciplinary work. We're looking forward to learning more about how you connect as friends and colleagues, how you support each other to explore the interrelationship and interdependence of cultural production and radical politics, and how you've helped each other, pushed each other to develop greater conceptual clarity into the well-being of people belonging to marginalized groups or labeled marginalized in white supremacist societies. Yeah, so from my understanding, you both have been in conversation for several years now. So can you share with us a little bit about how you both first met or um, when you first discovered each other's work? I'll let Brian start. No, I'll let you start. Mm-hmm. A, a few years ago, um, I was um, I came over to Canada uh, for a few months as a visiting uh, professor in the philosophy department. And at uh, I randomly at some event met um, Aziz Chowdhury, um, and he had worked in New Zealand, and so we hit it off and we got talking. And Aziz said to me, um, you know, I've got this friend who you've got to meet. His name's David. He's amazing. You should meet David. And I was like, great, great, let's do it. Um, and we set up a time, and I stood them both up. 
<laughs> and then we were supposed to meet a second time and I slept through that meeting for some strange reason. So I think I stood David up a second time. Uh, I was mortified and I sent him an email and I was like, listen, man, I'm really sorry. Uh, I owe you a meal or something. Uh, this is just atrocious behavior. Please forgive me. I would really like to meet. And he was like, you don't owe me anything. Uh, come, let's hang out. He was incredibly gracious. Uh, and that was uh, the very first time we met. Uh, it was in a little coffee shop. Um, I can't even remember where now. Um, yeah. Just around the corner from here, yeah. Place yeah. called Shave Red Cafe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's the first time we met, it is true, but I had heard about your presence because Brian at the time was a visiting professor in McGill's philosophy department. So I had heard from a few people, including our late mutual friend Aziz Chowdhury, um, that Brian was here. And then I think after that encounter, there was a session, a forum organized, philosophy forum organized at McGill. Um, and I attended, and Brian was one of the panelists for one of the sessions. And yeah, I think that was really the beginning of a series of conversations um, Unfortunately, when, when Brian and I met, he was getting prepared to go back home. But he came to my house for dinner, and this is where he can tell you his story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He came to my house for dinner. Yeah. We were hanging out. He was talking with my kids about philosophy and, and literature and just about life. And, you know, I, what I actually really appreciated was his curiosity and uh, the, the, the way he engaged my kids, who were a bit younger, obviously, it was like three years ago now. Um, so I guess 16 and, and 12. And um, expressed genuine interest. And also my partner, who is Cuban. Um, so we had a series of interesting conversations and everybody was sleeping. We stayed up late, having a little bit of a drink. And <laughs> yeah, it was actually, it was actually legal by then. Yeah, a little uh -huh. bit of a smoke. Uh, mm -hmm. And then um, Brian had this otherworldly experience. <laughs> but you know, it's funny, right? I mean, like we joke about it now, but it's true. Um, you know how sometimes you can have a conversation and you feel that something fundamentally shifts in you as a result of it? You know, like, you know, the area of uh, philosophy that I, uh, one of the areas of philosophy that I work in and spend a lot of time with is phenomenology, which has a lot to do with thinking about a kind of orientation in time and space, right? Like our bearing and our orientation in the world and towards others. And in that back and forth, you know, like, because we'd caught up at a bookshop and then, you know, had dinner and kept on talking and talking and talking. And like, I think I eventually ended up leaving uh, David's apartment at like four or five in the morning to go pack. Uh, and we had kind of caught up, I think, at like two in the afternoon. Right? So like, you know, there's like this back and forth. And, and, and I genuinely felt that like conceptually, intellectually, and also like spiritually, something in me shifted, like something moved. And the hilarious bit is like the summit of this was uh, having smoked. Um, I suddenly had this like gush of nausea and I swear I felt like I emptied uh, all of my insights <laughs> into his toilet. Like I only just made it to the bathroom, grabbed onto the toilet seat for dear life and I heaved all of my insights into it. 
And as ridiculous as it sounds, something of who I'd been up to that moment was left behind in 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 that toilet bowl. <laughs> and like, you know, it was the manifestation, I think, of like a reorientation in the world. What I got immediately afterwards was laughter and mockery. But <laughs> it was still profound. <laughs> and you know what's funny? And a sympathetic cat. <laughs> That's right, my sympathetic cat. You know what's funny about this is that so there's this expression that I use often uh, that comes from my grandmother. She would often say that nothing comes before time. Mm. And, you know, mm. Brian left, and we weren't in touch for a while. I mean, the pandemic happened, and all kinds of things happened. The world changed. And, you know, I guess people were all just busy sorting out our lives, right, and trying to figure out where this thing is going. And then at a certain point, we reconnected and began a series of conversations which we you know we can talk about some more but um i guess timing is everything and the convergence of covid and the need to engage and deliberate but having that foreclosed in some ways just because our interface with students and our friends and our colleagues was like either non-existent or in front of the computer but somehow in the midst of that we reconnected and pretty much at least once a week and sometimes more throughout the core period of the pandemic we engaged in a series of conversations and i kid you not some of those conversations because of the time difference between here in australia and my insomnia began at one or two o'clock in the morning and would end at six or seven o'clock the same morning, my turn. And that's kind of, um, yeah, that's kind of how, 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 it, how it's been, right? So it's very strange right now because Brian's in an apartment in Montreal and I'm in my, my home in Montreal, right? So we've just been continuing that conversation is, is, is what I'm saying in some ways, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I guess part of what I'm trying to say, just put explicitly, I think those conversations, among other things, but those conversations sustained me, I think, intellectually, and I would even say spiritually in a certain way, in the midst of a world turned upside down, big adjustments in our household as a result of that, reorganizing our house so that we can all be at home, school, working, just, you know, in the midst of all of that, you know, and not really enjoying teaching online as much as, you know, it was, I mean, I want to be clear that our situations as people are educators is you know, kind of very different from what most people experience. The mere fact that we had jobs, you know, was, was something in and of itself. But it's not the same as being in the classroom. There was something about those conversations that just carried me through some of that time, I would say. Mm-hmm. And it, it definitely goes both ways. Because like that, that, that sense of re- reorientation, a kind of, I don't know, a kind of almost a different kind of, um, let's call it political awakening in, in some ways, among other things. Like, so there's the moment, but then the nourishment of that and a kind of growth and just being nourished and sustained and being held in and through those conversations. It was, it was profound. We're both nerds. <laughs> and it's weird because, you know, I've never used that word to describe myself in my life. But hanging out with Brian has made me realize yeah. that, like, what I have in common with some of my closest friends, even though we don't move in the world that way, like, consciously, I mean, I've never thought of myself, but, like, yeah, like, I can think about, you know, 
because, you know, Danielle, you know Adrian, of course, and, mm. you know, there are mm. other folks. There's Mariam Carver in New York. You know, we don't talk as often as we used to, but whenever we talk, it's, you know, we have these kinds of conversations. Because I saw Mariam the other day, and I'm looking at her bookshelf, and I'm just saying, like, you know, like, actually, with everything else, yeah, we are kind of like uh, these kind of nerdy book people, but it's the appreciation. And this is why I like, like joking aside about the nerd part. Well, it's not a joke, actually. It's the appreciation of the power of thinking and how, and how ideas are the embodiment or congealed form of our reality. And they shape how we move in this world. They really do. And, you know, being able to kind of take that for granted and having ongoing conversations in that spirit, in that vein, for me was, has been pro- profoundly imp- important. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing around revolutionary power of curiosity. Thank you for sharing around how you're sustaining humanistic community, which I think is a really powerful thing too, right? I have um, Gilroy's Black Atlantic here on my desk, right? Because I'm often thinking about how to write acknowledgements, you know? And the question I'd have... Because I'm, I'm always thinking about nostalgia and loss and despair. And I often relate it to a feeling or a sense of people who had that humanistic community and then lost it, right? So Gilroy's despair in or at Yale is partly to do with feeling disconnected in a neoliberal environment, right? But one of the things he says in the Black Atlantic at the acknowledgements is... A kind of fragile community can be composed of people who disagree with one another, constituted by the fruitful mode of disagreement that grows of discipline and mutual respect. And I was wondering if you could speak to how you learn from each other through disagreement, as well as the moments of alignment, right? So you both share a sensibility, but I'm also wondering, how have you constituted the sense of community where you disagree with each other as well as open up new worlds with each other as well? And I'm curious, it'll be interesting if you have a completely different take. Do you know, it's odd, right? Like, I can't think of too many places where we actually fundamentally disagree. What I think is different is our starting points. Our points of entry, I think, are often different, right? Like, I have learned from David to take really, really seriously, intellectually, the idea of the Caribbean radical tradition. You know, the idea that the black radical tradition as kind of basic and, and obvious as a sound, that the black, the black radical tradition isn't homogenous. It's not any one thing. It's a series of different strands. And the Caribbean radical tradition being one that's both a part of that broader black radical tradition, but that's one which is tied not only to the African continent, but also to the Indian subcontinent, other parts of Asia and indigenous communities as well. And that the Caribbean radical tradition offers something different, something particular, maybe I should say, right? And I think it's been incredibly generative Prior to meeting David, I think I used to think about Africanity as something primarily in terms of the African continent. You know, like I grew up in Zimbabwe. That's where my formative years were. I've spent going on to 15 years now in Australia. So I think a lot about uh, what an African diaspora, you know, what a diaspora of people of African descent in Australia means and looks like. 
And in Australia, First Nations people understand themselves as black. So the idea of a black identity in Australia isn't exclusively an African thing. And those complexities, thinking from that vantage and thinking in conversation with David, that's been incredibly generative, incredibly generative. Particularly, you know, I remember a conversation around Sylvia Winter's Black Metamorphosis and the idea of new natives and thinking the resonances and the complexities of and the importance of that appellation from a Caribbean radical tradition perspective and from an Australian African diasporic perspective and from a continental African perspective. And I've, I've, I've learned an immense amount grappling with, with those ideas. Hmm. Well, the first thing I will say that it's obviously mutual. And um, it's also true that I can't think of a major, I can't think of a, any significant disagreement we've had. I mean, if one, th- I mean, <laughs> the, the one thing I will say is that, that, I, that, I, that I don't like mm-hmm is that Brian is too humble at times. <laughs> yeah. But that's not even something not to like, right? There's a kind of dimension of, you know, not quite self-effacing, but like, and then I find out these things along the way about this person in front of us. I'm like, hmm, interesting, right? And um, so sometimes we, I have to push Brian to reveal more about what's in his head because he's always asking questions. So you use that word curiosity, um, which is a word that we actually invoke quite a bit and sometimes talking about the absence of curiosity at times and, and what that means in terms of, you know, thinking, enthusiasm for ideas, and that this thing is not just about what well, is a vocation, but it's like this is about, you know, it's life fulfilling, right? And it has real life meaning and therefore can never just be a profession. So there was a part of my life at one point where African studies and the African continent and African thought were really important to me. And a transition happened more towards the Caribbean and its diaspora, and of course the black diaspora, and also situating myself in the place where I live, which is Montreal in the Canadian context, etc. And you know, my conversations with Brian have brought me back to thinking about, and especially my conversations with him about Ngugi Wationgo. And the surprise for me, as somebody who used to read Ngugi when I was uh, an undergraduate, you know, the surprise is how much Ngugi engaged with Caribbean thinkers like C.L.R. James, especially George Lamming. And, Walter, and also Walter Rodney. And then what that meant and what that means in terms of how we understand this thing called blackness, what we might call an African radical tradition, a Caribbean radical tradition, and a black radical tradition, which, as Brian mentioned, sometimes can be all-encompassing in ways that don't allow us to think about how we can benefit from the intricacies and complexities of the different dynamics within what is referred to as the black radical tradition. So what does Ngugi bring as somebody from the African continent, right? What does Walter Rodney bring, or Franz Fanon, or Amy Cazare, or Sylvia Winter, or Claudia Jones, based on that experience, which might inflect differently from Angela David or George Jackson, and to be able to think about it, or to think about Malcolm X in relation to his West Indian Grenadian mother, Right? And what that meant knowing that they were Garveyites organizing in this Pan-African movement in the United States led by this Jamaican man. So this is all of these things. And then, you know, Zimbabwe obviously has a very kind of special relationship to the Caribbean and vice versa because of Bob Marley. That song, Zimbabwe, is like an anthem, which, as Brian often reminds me, kind of inaugurated Zimbabwe's independence. So it's kind of brought me back to thinking about, you know, why in some respects 
I don't want to say abandon is a strong word, but like it's bringing me back to something that at one point was at the core of my thinking. You know, how do we connect these dots in terms of these experiences, a multiplicity of experiences that have historically converged, whether you call it under the guise of Pan-Africanism, when you look at the 1930s and the work of Amy Ashford Garvey alongside C.L.R. James, George Padmore, and later Kwame Nkrumah and others, right? You know, that was like real-time, genuine politics, for a certain vision or conception of liberation and freedom, right? It wasn't abstract Pan-Africanism. Um, it wasn't like, you know, this kind of like romanticization of the African continent. It wasn't simply conceptual. Brian has brought me back to those, some of those conversations and, and brought me back to, you know, thinking about African philosophy. You know, somebody I used to read quite a bit in, in you know, back in the 90s was, uh, you know, Theo Theo Benga. And, um, but like having conversations that allow me to revisit these folks respectfully in ways that, you know, you know, sometimes when you leave something behind, you behave as though you've moved on, right? But like these things come back with a vengeance, right? And I've sort of been reminded of how you can integrate things in your thinking, right? And because these things are actually integrated. So I want to say something else, because um, Brian mentioned Sylvia Winter, and we, you know, we were having this conversation with several other people, and then it continued with Brian and I around this question of how she uses the language of the native. And, you know, Brian had this visceral response initially. It was like, you know, where I come from, meaning as in, in Australia, right? You know, black folk can't just go around calling themselves natives when they are real natives, right? The indigenous aboriginal peoples. And like, it's an abuse of the term. I didn't necessarily agree, but I didn't disagree. And I found myself shifting, um, or at least being forced to think about the significance of that term, right, in relation to a metamorphosis. And what does that mean? And then, you know, there are folks like Melanie Luton, who has written this incredible article, um, detailed, very rich article about Caribbean Africanity and indigeneity as kind of the founding um, moments of this modern Caribbean and the, the dynamics between indigenous and African people in the Americas and in the, and particularly in the Caribbean and how that shaped policies and practices in North America as opposed to the other way around. It's, it's extremely rich and really thought provoking, but it forces us to kind of think about the language of nativity, what solidarity means. And, um, but also, I'm shifting from the article back to just Brian, our conversation about Native. Like, realize that Sylvia Winter is invoking a number of things at the same time. And one of the problems that we, we find when we kind of stick to just language and, and not do that kind of extra work in terms of thinking about context and lineage is that you realize that Sylvia Winter is obviously reading Frantz Fanon too, who talks about Natives, right? But she's also reading Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who talks about Natives in the Gulag, Gulag Archipelago, right? So... It's invested with this kind of transnational meaning, which if we read at sort of one level, we might miss, but then being forced, you know, via Brian to problematize the language is what brought us, or brought me at least actually, to kind of querying it and thinking more about it. So it's the question, not necessarily resolving questions, but continuous, continuously asking questions and thinking about where those questions take us. And um, that's... Uh, that's I would say I would say has been a has been a gift. Yeah, and you know just on that point though, like and it goes both ways, right? Because that initial visceral response, um, and we all have them, right? Like we, 
we have our taken for granted. You know, we have the things that we think are, are absolutely core and there's a reason for them and it's good. But like the opportunity to take that visceral taken for granted and to interrogate it and to, and to think, you know, uh, and the space and the generosity but also i mean i'll say this about david um this man takes his work this man takes his intellectual vocation um more seriously than anyone else i've had the pleasure to know right um and so there's a commitment to thinking and to grappling and to, which means sometimes kind of traversing ground that's difficult uh, and and again one of the things that i've learned from david is a courage a courage to think, you know, and a courage to think beyond, far beyond uh, the bounds of conventional wisdom and the bounds even of your comfort. Again, it was another kind of reorientation, right? Like what it led, what, what, what it meant for me was the understanding, you know, because there is sometimes a fractious and sometimes a, fr- yeah, a fractious relationship between First Nations folks and people of African descent and Australian context and thinking you know, with David and with uh, other friends in that reading group and thinking about how Sylvia Winters uh, using and making sense of this idea of the native, as difficult as it is, that informed uh, my understanding of the nature of the difficulties in the relationships uh, that that I was witnessing. And yeah, it was just incredibly helpful, like incredibly, incredibly helpful. A, a trivial disagreement. Well, I don't know. Some people might judge it not trivial. And shout out to the Black Students Organization uh, at John Abbott College. But there was a poll that they did on which is better, jerk chicken or oxtail. Uh, <laughs> I personally voted for oxtail as much as I love jerk chicken. <laughs> yeah, only a Jamaican. Only a non-Jamaican. <laughs> you can cut that part out. <laughs> or not? <laughs> you know, no. I was just gonna say that I think part of Brian's humility is tied to a certain kind of generosity and curiosity. And you know this very well, Danielle. Like that, you know, in academia there can be a lot of sort of academic posturing, um, and folks can sort of overproject themselves in ways that are not always in keeping with the spirit of dialogue. I don't want to make too much of this because, you know, I mean, you know, because it might even contradict what I'm trying to say in other words, because like we, we should, we're supposed to be humble and we're supposed to believe that we can genuinely learn from anybody, which means that we, we learn to listen. You know, so when I tell my students that like at the end of the semester that this was, I really enjoyed this class and I learned something teaching about teaching and also from their perspectives. Right? I mean it. You know, Brian doesn't run around telling people that he's a medical doctor and a trained philosopher and that he used to practice medicine before he became a philosopher. And I don't even remember how it came up in a conversation one day. And I would say, excuse me, what did you just say? And then he explained the reasons why he shifted from medicine to philosophy, you know, based on, you know, and, and I'm just saying like, yeah, that comes with a certain kind of humility, which should always be rewarded, I think. But I think sometimes a certain kind of humility in the world that we live in, where people are kind of accustomed to kind of pumping their chests, right? It's seen as a form of weakness, actually, which is tragic because people miss opportunities to learn and to share and to engage in conversations. And that's tragic. 
There's so many questions I want to ask. <laughs> There's so many questions I want to ask. I'll just start with Fanon, because you've discussed what it is to be a medical professional and a philosopher. Now, what I was hearing so powerfully in your reflections around thinking about formative context and how we can trace the different ways in which scholars and intellectuals are drawing on different novelists, different thinkers, different texts. But one really interesting thing to think about is why don't philosophers talk more about the films Fanon watched, for example, right? So Fanon loved film, right? And so to understand how he developed his ideas is not just to read the books he read, but also to think about what's the culture he is engaging with, how he's responding to the films he watches, but also the experience of going to the cinema. And I'm wondering if you could maybe reflect on what Lewis Gordon would call the disciplinary decadence of philosophy, like the, the types of approaches that actually push out reality because it doesn't fit the, the rampant textuality. And also maybe reflect on how your conversations and your serious engagement with intellectual thoughts means serious engagement with film, with art, um, with other forms of expressive culture outside of philosophical texts, novels, etc. That's a brilliant question and a difficult one, but a brilliant question. All right, look. I have a facile answer, which is far too simplistic and a bit reductive, but not completely untrue. I think one of the tragedies of academic philosophy is an overinvestment by those of us who live and work in academic philosophy in the figure and the idea of the academic philosopher as someone who grapples with these esoteric things that most people can't understand, right? And a kind of separation from the masses, which therefore legitimates and makes valuable uh, the people engaged in that enterprise. And I think film is then seen as low culture rather than high culture. So opera is great. Goethe's Foster is fantastic. You know, we'll talk about that. But film, you know, and may I just say uh, the film Parasite, I think in a more just world would be treated philosophically with the same regard as Plato's Republic, because I think it's grappling with similar themes and does so as powerfully in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways. But that's a little bit reductive. I think... And, you know, like I'm not a Deleuze uh, and Guattari scholar and I, I don't I don't have uh, expertise in the philosophy of film per se. But I think another thing that's difficult is that there is a specific grammar and there are complex, complex issues to do with tempora- the temporality of film. Right. Um, I think what film throws up is qualitatively different to say music as a medium or visual art even as a you know fixed visual art static visual art as a medium and for a variety of reasons one of which i I think you know so for music for example if you think about adorno and his relationship to beethoven and the time that he has for beethoven and the horrendous grossness readings of jazz that he has Femi Okiji's book on Adorno and jazz is amazing. She, 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 she deals with this incredibly. But I think, you know, class, you know, I think there's an interesting class analysis to be made there, right? 
And so my less reductive answer is to say something along the lines of, I think there's a qualitative difference between the various forms of expressive arts uh, that an adequate philosophical engagement with film requires its own kind of study and a cultivation of particular forms of inquiry processes. But the reason why more philosophers don't invest in that and the way that we have philosophers investing in music uh, and in the literary and in other things, I think a lot of that is bound to to class and the political economy of academia and the political economy of academic philosophy. And David often talks about the ways in which people appropriate Fanon for their own ends. You know, I, it would be interesting, I think, to think about the kind of commodification and consumption of Fanon that, that come through his thinking with and alongside certain forms of art and comparing that with the lack of commodification and, uh, and consumption of him with relation to, to, to film. I think that would make for like just a really interesting project. Mm-hmm. I mean, I concur with, with, with everything that Brian said. And it's an interesting point about Fanon and film, because it's not something I knew about him. And, you know, I, I spent quite a bit of time, you know, thinking about Fanon over the years. But uh, it's also not surprising, given his levels and layers of curiosity. And, you know, there's that line in Black Skin's White Mass, where he says, oh, my body, make me someone who always questions, right? That's that's always how I've always understood him. So every thing slash phenomenon becomes a potential site of curious investigation. So it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, I would love to hear more about actually, you know, what films he was watching and how he understood them. But, you know, Brian mentioned something in relation to Adorno. And, you know, when it came to music, jazz music, so-called jazz music, and by extension, black folks, Adorno said some very foolish things. And it's completely tied to this conception of high culture, which is a completely classist and is very different and, and, and like complete, the complete opposite. And I'm mentioning him because this is somebody who I'm thinking about a lot right now because I'm, I'm writing a book about him, C.L.R. James, who um, had a profound appreciation for popular culture, which begins in the Caribbean, where he's, you know, he talks about, and and I want to put this out there too, because there's a kind of what I would call intellectual apartheid that we need to kind of talk about in terms of how it constricts our thinking. And it comes in the guise of like sort of people being accused of being Eurocentric, or whatever the case may be. But my understanding of intellectual freedom and freedom in general is that there's a world of ideas and experiences out there. And if they speak to us, we should allow them to. We should engage them in conversation. So that's a kind of preface to say that. So James is accused of being Eurocentric for various reasons. You know, what philosophy he read, the fact that he was a Marxist, the fact that he, you know, he gravitated towards from an early age, like the, the, the English canon, and he read a lot of Greek drama, philosophy, etc. But what's interesting and important about James is that he talks about, because that's what he was exposed to as a child growing up in Edwardian colonial Trinidad, how reading Sophocles, Aeschylus, etc., as he walked around his own environment in Trinidad, it gave him insight into his own environment, the culture, mores, etc., right? The kind of folk ways that people live, which then becomes embodied in his writing, his fiction writing, his first novel, his only novel, Minty Ali, um, and his short stories. And it gives him a perspective about people's creativity, ordinary people's creativity, which he observes also in the game of cricket, and then he observes it in the labor movement in Trinidad and in the Caribbean. So that when he arrives to England 
and eventually becomes this thing called a Marxist. He's bringing actually what he already knows, and it's being framed by this methodology, so to speak, but it doesn't frame him. He brings that perspective to his book, which was actually a perspective, American Civilization, right? A 300, almost 300 page perspective. So like, in other words, a book about the book he's planning to write. And in it, his analysis of American popular culture, including film, Charlie Chaplin, also Russian popular culture, Sergei Eisenstein, and, and we'll cringe for a minute and then we'll get over it, or maybe not, G.W. Griffith. But obviously he's not bracing this man as a white supremacist. He's thinking about film as technique number one, and he's also thinking about what that film says about the moment in which the film was produced and the moment that the film is about, which is the Reconstruction Era, post-emancipation. And in that sense, suspending the, the fact that the film is in part about white supremacy, he finds it profoundly insightful. But again, it's being attuned to popular culture, right? To film, right? To detective novels, right? Soap operas, right? Gangster films, all these things that are considered quote-unquote low culture. James, the philosopher of the dispossessed, which is how I refer to him, realizes that they speak to certain preoccupations that people have in a given moment and in a given place. So it's constitutive of the moment. And to just dismiss that as low culture is profoundly problematic because we, you know, we, the, the insight that can be gained from understanding, even though these films may be produced by, you know, middle class or even wealthy, whatever, filmmakers, right? The fact that people are drawn to them as an audience tells us something too. So either way, there's something to ponder and to probe. But again, it goes back to the word that you used earlier, Daniel, and that's curiosity and the absence of that. And, you know, sometimes we're too tied to the conventional in ways that we don't even realize when there are things to explore right in front of us that we don't see as a result. Oh, Let me put it, maybe one other word into the conversation. Utopianism. And by that I mean what I really appreciate about your reflections, David, is how it's helping us to think about context, right? how these films speak to particular space-time formations. But I'm also wondering about this idea of utopianism in relation to how creative artists might be perceived as conquering greedy and hostile culture industries with their rebel spirit, right? That could be musician like Bob Marley, that could be an athlete. Um, and I'm wondering, because so much of our conversation has spoke to figures from different historical contexts who we continue to read as our contemporary or our contemporaries, are the quote-unquote celebrities or prominent figures or underground figures in our contemporary moment who are exciting you, helping you to imagine new worlds, or doing that type of work where they're not merely repeating sound bites to become acceptable or commodifiable, but are either in conversation with James, in conversation with Fanon, in conversation with Winter, expanding, developing, moving forward a Black radical tradition that's ceaselessly in motion. You ask such easy questions. <laughs> <laughs> mm. 
I'll let Brian begin. What? <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> it feels like yeah. I, I, you know, I played yeah. very little sport. I remember in rugby, they used to have this thing called a hospital pass. This feels like a hospital pass. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, yeah, that's an amazing yeah. question. Um, I think I have two broad mm-hmm. thoughts. And again, like I'm very, very, very grateful to David f- for pushing me think harder and more deeply about class and political economy. So Hollywood is an industry, kind of elites in Hollywood, even the ones we feel an affinity for and, you know, see as representing us in some ways. They have a vested class interest. They are producing works which are ultimately commercial commodities that are made specifically to turn a profit. That's not to say that that work can't be subversive. That's not to say that there's an either or or there is an ideological litmus test that it should pass. But it's just to say that the idea that tomorrow can hang on the dreams that a huge industry sells us is one that I think we need to be really suspicious of. Because, you know, there's this idea of a cultural state apparatus that says, you know, cultural institutions often can function in tandem with the repressive state apparatus, with those arms of the states where people wear uniforms and carry guns, right? And again, that's not to say that there isn't subversive, really important work that happens within those institutions of the repressive state apparatus, but that's not where I'd look first and foremost for a better tomorrow. Having said that, though, I mean, I completely agree. There are I'm I'm going to steal uh, something that I imagine David was going to say, but it's his fault for letting me go first. Like, you know, the the, the last Sons of Kemet album that came out, like, you know, like that carried me in a lot of ways through that post-George Floyd moment, through the cynicism of some of the responses to that post-George Floyd moment. (laughs) He's just one up to me by holding up the album. (laughs) You know, uh, through the pandemic, like, like that music, that, that, that artistic expression, it carried me. Like it, 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 it literally like propelled and carried me. It helped me move through the world in a particular way. It kind of girded me to make my way through time and space. I think about them in the same way that I think about Afela Kuti and the kind of impact and the kind of protests and, and the politics that he had in the same way that I think about a Bob Marley, same way that, you know, I've been writing a thing and thinking about Nina Simone's uh, Nina Simone in general and that song Cinnamon, you know. And and so like, yeah, um, yes, uh, this is where I stop mid-sentence and tag David in. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the pandemic was hard. And one of the things that made the, the, well, the earlier days of the pandemic difficult was the absence of live music. So the first real concert I attended this year which was the first real concert, you know, since the pandemic, was the Sons of Kemet here in Montreal. And you talk about otherworldly experiences in terms of what music and musicians can do um, and the kind of space that music can create in your consciousness and, like, give you that feeling of, like, of life and freedom. I mean, they, that group, I think, right now in this particular moment is one of the groups that embodies that. And they bring a particular sensibility jazz inflected but then there's reggae and calypso which speaks to their 
presumed West Indian background, they're coming from England, but it could also be, because it's the English black population we're talking about, it could also be African too, right? There's the, but there's elements of something that's particularly out of the context. Like, so when I think about some of the musicians that I admire and what their music, you know, does for me over the years, like, of course, there's, oh, you mean, you mean, it's an endless list in terms of American R&B soul, an endless list in terms of reggae music, but... In my later formative years, early 20s, listening to UK soul and jazz, Ronnie Jordan, Courtney Pine, the beautiful Carlene Anderson of the Young Disciples, and that song Freedom Sweet, just priceless. And it continues to just, you know, it's like another generation of musicians that are coming. Well, yeah, the incognito, the brand new heavies, yes, that was true. And, you know, and I, and I guess you could say, like, it began with, um, well, in terms of, like, popular transnational success, loose ends, and of course, soul to soul. But like, it's just music opening up this space for us to kind of breathe, actually, and then feel refreshed to be able to see things, some things slightly differently. And there's something profoundly spiritual about that. You know, in terms of reading, I'm going to invoke two people in particular. One, you know, who, when I first read her, she kind of, um, like scenes of subjection kind of blew my mind a little bit, like Cydia Hartman. And it's been a while since I've, you know, read anything by her. And I, and I recently started reading Wayward Lives, and I'm like, wow. Wow. There's another way to think about how people live their lives, right? And how we capture the spirit, trials and tribulations of popular lives. Like I say popular lives, meaning like the lives of the dispossessed. Um, which is so nuanced and complex, right? It's almost like subterranean. Like, you know, it's hard to put your finger on and define it. And she somehow, because she's not just a thinker, but she's a beautiful writer, it's almost like you're reading fiction. It's almost like you're reading fiction. And she almost, but not quite, you know, because she's such a beautiful writer, she almost... You can almost forget what you're reading, just how, you know, like she's writing about traumatic experience, traumatic lived experience. That's part of what she's writing about, because not to pathologize, right? But she's also writing about perseverance and resistance. Well, it's a different form than, it comes in a different form, at least the way she describes it, it's a different form to what we're accustomed to referring to as resistance or politics. Or organization, right? And um, it's forcing me to think a little bit about, you know, you know, what is it I'm saying and thinking about C.L.R. James's conception of self-organization and popular resistance, right? This is another dimension of it, right? That doesn't come in the same politicized, organized form. Right? But it's not disorganized either. It's not chaotic. Right? Um, it is about resistance and survival and perseverance. And it's just beautifully written. The other person I want to mention uh, who is English, and I've always loved her as a fiction writer, but I read um, Swing Time, Zadie Smith I'm referring to, a few years ago. And... I was immediately struck by, you know, because it's part autobiogra 
autobiographical, there's this allusion to C.L.R. James as the Black Jacobins in some of the opening pages, because the adult figures in the in the novel are members of the Socialist Workers' Party or some other kind of Trotskyist grouping, and the Black Jacobins and the Communist Manifesto is on the reading list. And I'm saying, like, that's a choice that she's made, right, in terms of the story that she's writing and what she choos chooses to name, right? So I thought that was interesting. I think the story could have ended a little bit differently, but there was something going on there that was a little bit different from her previous novels. And then I heard her in an interview by Anna Wachtel on the Writers and Company, CBC, which was during the pandemic, and she was talking about her collection of short stories, Union Station. The first, the story, the, the title of the first story, which gives the book away in some ways, is Dialectic. And then from there, it's just like this kind of, you know, reflection, meditation on life in many respects, and like choices, and I would say even maybe the absence of choices, the meaning of freedom, you know, but thinking about life's contingencies. But what really struck me was that in that interview, she began to sort of, you know, she was talking about the pandemic, and she started talking about the book Surveillance Capitalism, and how we're being surveilled and monitored, et cetera, et cetera. And she began like slowly to reveal some of her own political self, even to the point where it was very strange because you know only certain people can get away with this, right? She's, she's in the midst of this interview and she asked, you know, because of my Marxist background. And I said, well, what, what, what did she just say? It was like, you know, just like in this kind of almost slip of the tongue, which made me curious, not because like, you know, I mean, I mean, obviously I'm somebody that's been very much influenced by Marxism or the writing of Karl Marx, but I do not consider myself a Marxist because that those kind of is get you into trouble. Um, but, you know, what I'm trying to say is that she was on, she, she seems to be taking a different, no, I don't want to say different. She seems to be on a trajectory, which makes me very curious about what her next novel is going to say, right? Um, but I've always found her to be a very, in, you know, highly intelligent and very insightful writer, you know? And um, so she has been on my mind quite a bit. I would say those two, two, two folks more than any. I just want to mention Paget Henry in passing, but I won't, I won't get into any details. But, you know, we were talking about the Caribbean radical tradition and rereading something that Paget Henry wrote some years ago, where he's thinking about the relationship between African and Indian philosophy in the Caribbean, right? As a way of thinking about what it means for two populations that have been pitted against each other to kind of overcome those antagonisms. Um, it's really worth rereading in our, our moment, I think. No, I, I love it. Have you read the recent article in the LA Review of Books, something like Zadie Smith finds a way to class? No. Oh. No. <laughs> it might be it might be intriguing <laughs> in, in relation to your conversation. <laughs> the other text that you're making me think about is um, 
a collection of essays by The Wire, um, a music magazine. It's from a, a mm. section in the magazine, and the book was called Epiphanies, Life-Changing Encounters with Music. And so there was a chapter, the, the very brief, kind of two, three pages, each entry. You have mm. stand-up comedians talking about the fall. Um, a lot of them are, are speaking to the experience of live music. So exactly as you were mentioning, David, the, the, the importance of careful listening, the importance of being part of the collective, the importance of sharing a moment, the importance of thinking about transcendence, the importance of thinking about the ideal communicative moment between audience and artist. Um, Paul Gilroy's reflections on seeing the uh, voices of East Harlem, I believe, um, just after... Jimi Hendrix's passing. He'd seen Jimi Hendrix in uh, the Isle of Wight Festival, and then he saw, saw the voices of his home at the Royal Albert Hall, and his reflections around that experience and how he wishes to prolong the politically infused pleasure of that moment is very interesting too. Right, So he still keeps the, um, the concert ticket of when he saw Bob Marley in concert. Right, So there's this, this idea that those transcendent moments, those politically infused acts of pleasure, those moments that move our rights and liberties forward, right? Hearing Bob Marley sing Get Up Stand Up with a group, not not in an isolated fashion, not just with the headphones in, right? But in that that, that setting is was particularly significant for everything you said in terms of sustaining humanistic music, inviting a sense that even if a record had been purchased individually, it could never be reduced to that individual act of consumption. There's always other conversations that can be prompted. There's always other moments that bring people together who might not otherwise have done so and allow them to go to spaces and places they wouldn't be able to imagine on their own. You know, Daniel, I just want to mention... It's kind of funny that didn't even come to my mind immediately. So George Floyd, murder in particular, made me think quite a bit about Linton Kwesi Johnson and how his poetry has been representative of various moments and how, I mean, aside from the fact that I was born in England and lived the first 10 years of my life there, and I, you know, so his poetry has a particular resonance because he's speaking about sometimes people, but especially places that, you know, have a familiarity but I'm far removed from just because of age and stage and whatever the case may be. But some of those poems are timeless. Yes, on the page too, but like listening to Sonny's letter. You know, so I, you know, as you know, I've written about Linton Crazy Johnson, but I also, you know, I teach him my classes and, you know, thinking about Sonny's letter alongside Ella Fitzgerald's Miss Otis Regret, right? In terms of tenor, tempo, and, you know, and tone and all of those things. And all of a sudden you realize, like, despite the monotone voice and the calm, persona and demeanor it's like this is about a harrowing story about you know being incarcerated or killing a police i mean all of these things and miss otis regrets is like i mean and i didn't realize that she didn't write the song ella fitzgerald but like it's her song because of the way she sings it right and her voice her sense of timing which is just unbelievable impeccable you know because sometimes we reduce singing to range and like you know who can you know bellow you know it, but like you know she's not that singer i just think that you know that, that there's a his poetry has been profoundly influential 
in terms of I, what I understand the relationship between music and poetry, which then is what brought me back to, of course, that poet that I grew up listening to, I mean, almost to the point that like you could almost assume that he was born and grew up in England. And that's Bob Marley I'm referring to. Of course, Bob Marley's a poet. He's absolutely uh, a poet. And like, not only is he a poet, he's a philosopher poet. There are just certain lines and like in the kind of prescience of some of his poetry and the profundity of some of his poetry um, and insight, which almost becomes foresight because it's so, you know, but it comes from this place of experience tied to his creativity. Like if you know where Bob Marley comes from, and I say that because it's where my my father's side of the family comes from, it's a place that I know very well, you know, to emerge from that and be who he is and what he became to the world is otherworldly in and of itself, right? But it speaks to the creative capacity of so-called ordinary people, which only through Herculean efforts, right, do they arrive at the place where Bob Marley does. So if Adorno was alive today, I'm not sure what he would say, but like anybody who can't appreciate that degree of creativity and genius, well, probably needs another vocation. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's... That's part of an experience that, and you know, I just want to say something very quickly because, um, you know, this Caribbean versus black and like, you know, these things are entwined in many respects. But the reason why, and, you know, Daniel will appreciate this, like growing up in England, right, where the points of reference are quite different. And I've always believed that the points of reference in England in terms of black population, despite the distance, are in many respects very close to the points of reference here. Right, because of like you know, represent relationship to, you know, to to um, you know to English colonization, um, large a large immigrant population, right, which is very different from the United States. Which is not to say there aren't pockets of that in the United States, because Caribbean folks have had a huge influence in the U.S. too, but the demographics are are are, are different, and you know, I think it's important. For Caribbean descended people, as it is for the world, and you know, but I'm saying this very specifically, right? To hold on to that and share it, right? And to recognize that that's something that is also brought, just like other groups of people, you know, who infuse and become part of what becomes this Black Canadian population, whether they're from Somalia or from Kenya or whatever the case may be, right? It's like losing that in this kind of amorphous conception of Blackness does a disservice to the complexity and creativity that, 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 that the various groups of people bring, right, to this demographic, to this population, and also the ways in which, you know, as opposed to being unidirectional, those experiences can have some, provide some insight to the experiences of Black folks living south of the border, right? And I think, you know, because, I mean, you being very familiar with Stuart Hall and Paul Gilroy, in many respects, and with some resistance, that's what they brought to the United States, right? Um, and, you know, and to the extent that they were bringing something unique and insightful, it's partly born out of it. It's, of course, it's an intellectual contribution, but it's born out of a particular experience that is not American. And I think Black intellectuals living in the Canadian context have something unique and particular to contribute 
but it can't happen if there's a degree of mimicry or absorption that comes from south of the border uncritically, right? Because yes, we do the dynamics of race. We live in a white supremacist society, but the dynamics are not exactly the, exactly the same because the context is not exactly the same. And what our experience and reflections on those experiences can bring to this pool of knowledge and ideas, I think um, could have huge significance, important significance, and provide insight. And particularly when I think it goes in cycles, but we're in a moment where it's easy to slip into these kinds of essentialisms around blackness that, you know, become foreclosures more than anything else. Yeah. And if I could just add a word onto that. Even amongst ourselves, right? Like, even amongst this kind of, like, heterogeneous thing that is a black communities, so if you want the black community in Canada. Um, I mean, one of the reasons I love Montreal so much is the experience of interacting with someone from Haiti or someone from Cuba or someone from Senegal or someone, you know, his family comes from Jamaica or someone who's like uh, generations and generations of their family um, have been here and all of them being black, but all of them kind of what that means being different and expressed differently and manifesting in different ways for all of those is immensely, immensely, immensely enriching for me. You know, like there's something particular about uh, sitting on David's balcony and listening to uh, Bob Marley's small acts uh, <laughs> and kind of discussing that with the same kind of depth um, and grappling with it in the same way that we would any one of those books uh, on that shelf, right? Like, and actually, I remember, remember, I remember the first time I met David's partner and she was like, look, for the moment, you're no longer in Canada, you're in Cuba, all right? So you're going to experience a bit of Cuba. And I think it's really important that we don't deny that each other because that's a profound gift that we get to give to each other. It's, a, it's, it's I often think about that line uh, in Black and White Mask where Fanon says, like, you know, like I've, you know, my chest could expand to infinity. Like I have all of this to give, you know. Um, with all of that to give, to kind of constrain yourself into the mold of a blackness that you think will be easily assimilated and easily picked up by those around you, is such a, it's such a waste. It's such a shame. What an amazing episode. We'll leave the conversation there today. We'll release the second part of this incredible conversation next week. Join us next week for part two of our holiday special. Thank you again for listening to the Black Cities podcast. Thank you.